Welcome to the Cowboy Office Show, where you'll experience expert analysis and epic discussion on key pillars of the equine industry, including sports, business, hobby, and the horse lifestyle. Your co-hosts are Jody Brainerd and Brian Dykert, industry veterans with over 120 years combined living the cowboy lifestyle. The Cowboy Office Show will help you get involved, ask more questions, and create change. We'll keep riding for you as together we learn from the ride already ridden, learn to listen better to our horse, and make our industry better for all. Each weekly episode, we'll take a ride around the industry in less time than you can load the truck and trailer. Drop your email at cowboyoffice.com to receive weekly updates and never miss an episode. Settle up as we ride into today's show. Well, welcome everyone to today's episode of the Cowboy Office. My name is Chelsea Sutton. Honored to be here with you with your guests, Brian Digert and Jody Brainerd. Today's episode is going to be one for the books because while we often bring experts on this show and speak about things that they are expert at, today we're turning the tables back on your hosts and talking about the things in which they have so much expertise. Jody and Brian have collectively spent over 70 years in the judge's chair and working on the judge's program through the NRHA. And of course, they are also uh, and have been judges for other organizations such as the AQHA and so on. And today we are only two days from the National Reigning Horse Association Open Futurity Finals that happened. And we're going to be talking about a futurity analysis um, through the lens of industry experts, judge, judges experts, and of course, you know, all of the hats that they've worn therein. So I am excited to moderate this conversation and bring to light many of the uh, questions and topics and ideas that I know swirl between these two. And I will mention as we begin this show that there are many topics that might come up today that have a lot of technical expertise and technical insights or opinions associated. And we highly encourage you to reach out and ask us if you have specific specific questions about anything that might come up, you can reach us on cowboyoffice.com through the contact form there, or of course, through any of the social channels. We would love to make any clarifications or bring more insight on anything you have questions about. And in today's analysis, not only are we going to be talking about some of the data and numbers that are behind what happened at the reigning futurity, but a lot of opinions and ideas based on things that we saw here. And this is reflective of these two gentlemen's opinions and ideas as such. Let's dive in and start by maybe just talking about a little bit of the overview of the show itself and how it works. Shall we? Deep and tough, but great. Jody, give me two words. I'm not sure I can say it in two words. It's as good a futurity as I have ever seen. The best that I have ever seen. And you know what's fun about that? We've been saying that for 30 years. So, good. Getting better. Yep, that each one keeps doing that same thing. It's phenomenal. And, And it is a testament. I mean, what we've been playing with is the the... The three-year-olds is the new product in our sport and industry. And so um, can they always stay at that level? And the answer is now yes, because we've now seen three years of it. And so the depth, he's, yeah, 100% correct. I want to just give our audience a little bit of an overview of what this show entailed in total. And then I'd like to ask you guys a little bit of your 
analysis of it as well. So technically, the National Reining Horse Association Futurity and Show included 10 days of competition, a long 10 days, that incorporated the Open Futurity, the Non-Pro Futurity, and the North American Affiliate Championships, often abbreviated to the NAAC Championships, which are truly a culmination of uh, the affiliate competitions across the year coming to compete and be named you know, affiliate finalist. Um, so all of that was going on in Oklahoma City over the course of the last 10 days. Today, specifically, we're going to be talking about the open futurity um, and the analysis and data behind that. Uh, we could probably have our own show talking about the non-pro and our own show talking about the affiliate championships, for which we won't today. When we think about the open futurity itself, we had live streaming available. You guys could stream it anywhere, which has been typical for um, the NRHA for quite some time. However, commentary uh, was brought to you. There was a sports desk and some commentary as well as some new sports tracing technology that was brought to us by Teton Ridge this year. Uh, both of you guys, I believe, tuned into that and were able to hear it digitally. What uh, What'd you think? Jody, let's start with you. Well, I, you know, I think... I think that the the two horses. I mean, when when I think the idea is fun, really really sound. I think Teton Ridge has got. A, I mean, a great great idea here. But when they would, you know, they would back to back and they would show a couple of horses, say uh, the first stop and back up or stop and left roll back, um, and they would try and uh, they would they would try uh, they could make this happen where we could see both horses at the same time and try to do a side by side comparison and. Like I said, I think the idea is I think the idea is really sound, but I think the quality that because it was such new technology, the quality was so poor that it didn't have a great deal of benefit from either someone watching the futurity or from from an educational standpoint, maybe to. And Brian and I, we've talked about this, and you're going to go on with this again because we don't judge by comparison. Um, but like I said, and it doesn't mean that that we don't compare one to the other when we're trying to trying to teach someone or give someone an example. But I, I think that it's I think that the the idea is sound technologically. It's not there yet. Okay, I I, I couldn't get a great deal out of it. I had a very very hard time trying to understand what was happening with the two horses side by side. I don't know if that helps you or not, but. Sure. I think it's interesting. I, I, uh, several things. The first one being, why would they use uh, shadow technology in our sport, and where are they, where's their vision, and what does that mean? I'm not sure. I agree with what Jody said as far as from a spectator, what did it do to me? It actually confused me. Um, I think using technology in advanced formats. I'm all about it, and we're way behind, and so we should have in a lot of forms. Do I think that kind of technology, especially in officiating and teaching officials how to do better work, I think it's got a lot of applicability. How do you use it for um, audience? I'm, I'm not sure yet, and so I'm curious on kind of where they're going, but the simple that they gave us a, a test of some of that stuff, I, it's cool. That's good. So... How much more can we do? Um, wonderful. The comparative analysis inside our officiating is a big one because it does exist. We are humans. We do do it by natural reflex, and it's a weakness in our officiating anyways. 
and you'll hear it over and over. When you see two excellent spins back to back, judges will mark one of them a one and a half and the other one a one because the natural reflex of comparative is already in you. And because if you gave the one and a half on the first one, the second one wasn't quite that dynamic, your automatic senses tell you it wasn't that good, so you give it a one. I would tell you that's a weak reflex in it that they both deserved one and a half. And I'm just putting it into context because you have to understand that comparative function and the relative application to it from the officiating component. And it's one of the areas that um, we've got a lot of work to do. Understood. The crowd was significant this year and I don't have a number to, to label it, but I can tell you physically being there, the bottom section of the stands was completely full and through the stadium it carried up three quarters of the way. So it was nice to, nice to see a physical audience in attendance. And I don't have streaming numbers for you either. However, uh, commentator wise, we had Steve Ross and Pam Minnick on, which Pam is a uh, National Cowgirl Museum Hall of Fame and she's got a background in barrels and team roping. From a, per, from a scoring perspective, something that I noticed was different this year in years past on the Jumbotron screen, the main video screen that shows up there in the arena, and it also gets displayed on the live feed. In the past few years, we've been displaying all five scores from all five judges, and then, of course, the, the total score, which is the drop of the high and the low and the accumulation of the three. This year, they only displayed that final score, and that was true from the beginning of the show till the end do you guys as judges have any opinion on that or take on maybe why they did that it's great because the score is the score that is that is the official score that's what the audience needs now there's more to that info because by displaying all five individuals the audience would get too confused in stuff that they didn't have enough info on so the mere display, phenomenal. Now I think we need to go even more because the commentary, the MC, um, we've got to adjust the rest of that presentation so the audience can truly follow um, while that competition is going on. They are in their own way, but then they got to go figure out, you know, a 220 is a 220. That's what it is. Two twelves, two twelve, two oh seven to two oh seven. A one ninety is a one ninety, and everybody goes, "Oh, that's too bad." But so great, it's about time. Jody, yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And you know, whenever the I, you know the one thing about NRHA, they've always been very transparent with our judges' scores because we, you know, I mean, anybody can go look look up and see what the judges marked you maneuver by maneuver. I mean, it's a great it's a great thing. I think that you know. <laughs> you've shown before we've competed before we've judged a lot i mean and it doesn't make any difference but when you see five judges scores up there um no matter who's if it's the sean flairda fan club or the andrea fapani fan club or a owner or whatever obviously the high guy is going to be right and the low guy is going to be an idiot right i mean that's just the way that's just the way it works right so <laughs> it's you know that's why we throw out the high and the low but i'm just saying that just the one score if somebody really wants to know what those five judges are it's it's we're not trying to hide from it they're there they're available but right now there's a horse show going on show the score and go on with it i agree that's interesting. Okay. I think it's great. Good move. Pasta. Uh, 
there were no co-champions in the open, which is an ongoing, always yeah, happening conversation. We did have co-champions in the non-pro, um, which I won't get you guys to dive into tonight. Um, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me ask you guys this. Let me first ask, let's talk about the actual winners and the, the scores in those go rounds. And then I'd like to dive into what you guys thought about this futurity from a technicality perspective as a judge, as a monitor, what kind of technicality did we see? But let's give the audience an overview of, of what the competition had first of all. So let me first mention, I'll mention our winners in the level four and I'll just read them down. I'm going to read down your top five. Um, and then I'll ask you guys about the scores that it took to get from go round to open, uh, go round to semis and semis to finals. And then we can go from there. So in your level four, Futurity, first place, Sean Flerda with on DMO for Archese, uh with a score of 230. Second place, Customize My Dream, Casey Deary for Devin Warren with a score of 228 and one half. Third place, Abby Lingle, Bring in the Heat, uh, owned and shown by Abby. Congratulations. With a 226 and one half. Fourth place, Gonna Ride and Slide, Andrea Fapani for Tim Anderson, two, score of 226. And for fifth place, uh, mic drop, Andrea Fapani for Clark Raining Horses with a score of 225. And those were all unique places, different scores at every slot, unique places all the way down. Talk to me about scores going from go rounds into semis. One is depth, which is merely the amount of volume of high quality. So um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you. What we across the entire fraternity, the top score was a 77 and a half. So when you use our officiating scale, um, and and where's average at 70? You know, where do we see the bulk of raining between 71 and 73? That's a good raining. So once you go over 73, you're on the top end of that stuff. We saw scores, you know, 76 to 77 and a half was the top end of this from go round to semi. Now, who can do that twice gets to the finals, and now who does that three times? You just read a lot of five horses that did it three times, and they got the big prize, so good for them because that's about consistency. But um, So that's where the scores are, and that's where they are. What we saw this year, this, uh, this is my analysis, the judges, the officials, the five individuals they put in those chairs, they actually had ten because they used two different batches of fives, um, did a great job. A great job. And did they use the scale? Yes. Is there still a little bit of room on the top end? Yes. Because the amount of times that we saw excellent, which is plus one and a half, is very small. But The score of excellent or actual excellent maneuvers? Excellent maneuvers applied on the scorecards. So that scale that we use per maneuver. Um, so, which that's been... It's been a big conversation that the judges aren't using the entire scale. They did use the scale. They were consistent. They did a phenomenal job. Um, so, but that's where the competition was. Now you're talking about so horses that are capable of marking 73 to 77 and a half. Um, we're now talking about 80 to 100 horses out of 400, as opposed to in our day, we had 150 horses 
and five of them were there. And you knew that in July. Agreed. Yeah, there's no, there's no, <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no question about that. And, and in July, I, I didn't have one of those, right? I mean, the, the majority <laughs> of the time, I didn't have one of those. But I didn't um, have it in January. So. Yeah, I mean, the, this, this, you know, the, the officiating here, I think, was, was way, way good. And, you know, any time that we, Anytime, Brian, you and I have had this discussion at length, and Chelsea, you've, you've been around us so long that you've heard it probably in, until you're tired of hearing it. But, you know, we go back and we say that the judges don't have enough tools in the toolbox to, you know, to, to, these horses are so much better than they were 25 years ago. The judging system is still the same one that we used 25 years ago. It doesn't mean that they can't, that they're, they didn't use it like, I agree with you. This was, they judged the hell out of this horse show. And I mean, these horses were exactly where they were supposed to be. Um, I, I don't know if I've, you know, I saw a great, I saw a great futurity. I don't know if I've ever seen one that was judged any better than this one. So, but the better and better that the horses get, I, I think our, I think our standard needs to evolve and it probably has not. So just Understood. an opinion. I think we'll get, get into that. I think. Yeah, no, the standard was actually moving. So and the data says that. Elaborate on that if you would. Well, we don't judge by comparative. We've already briefly touched on that, but even though it exists. And so we judge the maneuver evaluation on how good or poor something is, is based on the industry standard. What we've known is that that standard is moving over time because the competitor is actually setting that standard year after year. We've, we're seeing that standard go up. And we also saw that standard move across 10 days. So that's true. And we'll get into the analysis of that because where people get uptight, your question on the scores, the score, that's true. How did we get there? Five individual experts put scores together that we dropped the high and the low. That's another conversation. Should we be dropping the high and the low versus using all five? We're going to get into that one too. Um, but we use that culmination of the five experts to get to a final score and it's how they make the decisions in the at the maneuver level so we we had the first go was eight maneuvers semifinals was seven maneuvers those two sets of patterns will score slightly different a seven maneuver pattern will score generally lower than an eight maneuver pattern those are facts and that's true and why because in eight maneuver patterns most of the time they have four stops Stops are dynamic terraining. Yes, you can mark big, so away you go. But the maneuver evaluation standard, what's, what's average, what's good, what's very good, what's excellent, will move in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. That's very interesting. That's very interesting, especially just thinking about industry conversations. Uh, do you guys have the numbers on what it took in the level four open fine in the level four open futurity to get from the go rounds to the semifinals? What score did it take to yeah, get it took back? A, it took a two eighteen and a half to make it to the semifinals after the first go, but that's seventy five head of horses that get to qualify for the semis. So that was a two eighteen and a half, and I would tell you historically, thirty forty years of it, that's pretty normal used to be 217 to 219. That's about what it was. We didn't have a semifinals. We just had two go-rounds and finals. We're doing it a little bit different. 
And so a 218 and a half, it takes to go 75 horses to the semifinals. After the semifinals, now Jody and I were talking because Jody and I talked about, Jody and I judged live, not official, in the stands, the 80 horses at the Run for the Million qualifier in Scottsdale in March. And him and I sat there together the whole time. And when we got done, we said that was the best reigning we'd ever seen, um, which is true. I think we just saw its equal in a 75-horse semifinals three-year-old fraternity. It was excellent. So three-year-olds versus aged horses, that's an interesting piece. But after the semifinals, now comes the next step, and it goes up because it takes a 440 to qualify the top 25 ahead to go to the finals for the open fraternity. That now averages to 220 twice. So from a 218 and a half, it's a point and a half higher, which is about the depth. So 75 horses are all marking over 220. You know, that's 73 and a half, 74 individual scores. And only 25 of those, a third of those are going to make it to the finals. Right. Well, and you make an interesting point, too, as far as the amount of maneuvers in a pattern, because if we were to compare year over year what score it takes to come back to the semifinals, you have to take into account whether that pattern had seven maneuvers or eight in order to have a true comparison. And maybe it's not a worthy comparison. I've just heard that. I heard that talked about a lot over the last two weeks. Oh, was this year's score that it took to get back to the semis higher than it was in previous years? Are we seeing better horses? Are our judges scoring higher? Do you guys have any feel on that, whether that's statistical or intuitive? I, I mean, I don't, I mean, if I, if you want me to take a shot at it here first, I mean, I don't think that, I don't, you know, first of all, you, maneuver evaluation wise, we're talking about seven and eight maneuvers. I mean, people understand that there's an extra one. If it's an extra stop, horses that can really stop are going to score higher. But uh, there's also a degree of difficulty factor in a pattern that needs to be taken into consideration too. I mean, you have because everybody has two sets of circles, but maybe you have pattern nine that you have to go from large, fast, change leads to slow, small, very high degree of difficulty. And maybe that is not the same set of circles that pattern eight is. So, I mean, that can, that can skew the, skew the scoring also. People don't have a, I mean, they have a tendency to maybe want to compare one, one pattern to another. I mean, or, uh, but it, it makes a huge difference, both from the trainer standpoint and from the judge's standpoint. So there's, there's another little, there's another little thing that you can throw in, um, just <laughs> besides the, the number, the number of maneuvers. But, um, no, I think that, uh, I think that you guys are, Brian, you're, you're all over it. So anyway, <laughs> go. no, that's true. That's yeah. What do you guys, when you look at this set of finalists from a judges and a monitor's perspective, um, can you talk a little bit about how this year's competition fares and speak to it to whatever degree you'd like, because maybe it's not just comparing it to other futurities. Maybe it's also comparing it to other events like the, the Cactus Classic, which was the Run for a Million qualifier, or other competitions in general. But when you think about the competition that was displayed and the judges' marks that came through, how would you, you know, I've heard you guys say there were a lot of technicalities to this futurity. Can you explain that a little bit? I can, because... As the depth goes up, and I have to go backwards a touch, um, 
reigning as the sport of reigning has continued to evolve, evolve, staying out of the penalty box was the big skill that you had to accomplish. And then after you got that done, now you could stay within the framework of how good your horse was and be a good showman and get the best mark you can get. We are now seeing our sport competing at very technical levels of high skill. It's not about penalties. It's not at all. Yes, penalties happen, but that's not what's separating it up. One of the things that I saw this year across 400, 475, and another, you know, 500 and some open runs across a week was the technical aspect. That's what's making the fine distinctions, which means officiating needs a lot of work, including their preparation and management and how you get them focused and ready to do their great work too. So that the officiating technical aspects, whether it's the lope departure, the shutoff, the start, all of those things, um, I can tell you that rollbacks are a struggling maneuver. Statistically, math that's that's true as an exhibitor and a horseman they are struggling to get it right or the judges are struggling to market both the struggling maneuver i'm not going to speak from a horseman standpoint the sport in making accurate assessments the stop and rollback is our struggling our most struggling maneuver in the sport of reigning this year's open fraternity says that Interesting. Jody, do you have any take uh, on the technicality piece, whether that's in addition to what Brian said or, or separately, if you had any other analysis? Well, you know, you know large? I, Chelsea, I think, you know, from, you know, speaking from a technical standpoint, I mean, there's a variety of, you know, since I've shown at this horse show so many times and had lots of finalists and had the opportunity to, to, uh, to, to, to win some money at that horse show. I think that, you know, it's evolved in so much. I mean, not just the horsepower that is obviously the 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 huge difference in 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 the way that these things are performing. Brian, back in our time, thirty years ago, right? I mean, they're so much better. But you know, first of all, you know, good ground, good reining. Jimmy Kaiser's footing was like perfect and never changed, right? From from the start of this horse show to the end of it. I mean, that's a that's a big big factor. Um, I think that, you know, we've, we've talked about it in the past that, you know, Brian, good horses are really easy to judge. I mean, they're much easier to judge. I mean, they, you know, you can go, wow, plus half, plus half, plus one, plus half. It's like those, the, the horses that are difficult to judge are the ones that we, we struggle to, to between zero and minus half and try to figure out where they're supposed to be. This is a great set of horses. This was a an incredibly experienced set of officials. I mean, on both sides of it, both all 10 of these people were, I mean, are can judge the heck out of any rain in that there is. I mean, and they're, they're very, very experienced. And I think when you, when you throw all those things together and now they're dragging on six instead of 10, like we used to, I mean, all these things come into play to make it a great raining. First of all, you got great trainers, you got great horses, but then all of a sudden these horses are, they're more rested than they used to be. You know, they have what they show Wednesday and then they don't have to go again until Saturday night. And you know, the downtime there never used to be that much. So it's a, uh, Everything takes it, it, you know, we take it into consideration when you're talking about a great horse show. And I don't know if that's from a technical standpoint or a judging standpoint, but all those things come into play. Absolutely, they do. 
Can you guys speak a little? I know there's been some data analysis and graphs around some of this, but I don't want to make assumptions for what those mean until you guys as experts tell me such. Can you talk about this maturity from the standpoint of spreads, spread scores, and what that means, how they showed up. I'm going to speak on two, and then let's pull up the piece on the decisions, because what we're asking of the officiating, it puts it into perspective on the magnitude. There are two things. The industry standard is the, not the standard, the normal reflex in the sport of reigning is looking at the multiple scores. And when multiple scores aren't the same, we all have this reaction to it. I've been a very strong proponent on they're not supposed to be the same. So one, get used to that, and then go find out the rest of the story. So the spread on the score, the difference between a 74 and a 75 or 74 and a 76, you're talking about how good something is. That's very different than the difference between a 68 and a 70 or a 69 and a 71. They're distinctly different, even though mathematically they're spread the same way. The real component is in the maneuver evaluation spreads. And when you heard Steve and Pam talk on the commentary, Steve would often make reference to those officials have one of two choices per maneuver. And general, that's true. Every maneuver, you basically have two choices, and it's one of those. So anytime those choices get stretched to more than two, now you got to look at what's going on. So when you have a maneuver that goes from zero to plus one or plus half to plus one and a half, that's a pretty big differential, which is a different standard. Um, and so uh, we've got a lot of data on that. Let's show the graph that highlights how many maneuver evaluation decisions were made because I think this is a fascinating starting point. Uh, when I was in college, I did a study on the research that was out around decision-making and that it was a finite resource. And, and that's a fact. It has been studied that is proven to be true. And that's true in humans. That's true also in animals. As we make more and more decisions, our ability to then make clear and finite decisions becomes more difficult. And so we actually stop doing it. I think understanding, and you guys can speak to this as monitors, as well as judges yourselves, this has to be something that we take into account when we think about um, how many decisions are being made by a judge across a day, across a show, um, and then how that impacts the entire show at large. When you guys look at how many decisions are being made, especially at a technical level, do you want to talk a little bit about the data behind this? Yes. Well, this graph shows the decisions that have to be made at maneuver levels, just on maneuvers, which is how good or how average or how poor a maneuver is, which is maneuver quality. This is the open fraternity only. The blue is the total amount of decisions that have to be made. So you got five judges. So for the first go around, because you had 406 entries in it, it's uh, 16,240 individual maneuver evaluation decisions. So that does not take into account penalties. No. That is only maneuver evaluations. That's the decision on how good something is, period, to get through the go-round. That's what the blue graph, that means that many decisions has to be made. The red graph is the per individual judge. So you got five of those. So each individual judge is the red graph. And then the yellow 
is representing the three scores put together to give you a final score. So that final score is a culmination of that, and that's how we get there. And so what this graph shows you is that demand on the officiating from first go, semifinals, and finals. And so the proportionate is exactly the same. The volume starts to come down because we're filtering it to the finals. But I would tell you the demand that we're asking out of the officials um, is actually extraordinary. And so are we doing the best we can to have the officiating at the same level of the depth of competition? That's the big question. Sure. That's a real question. Um, we've got a few other graphs, and uh, I think these speak to the, the competition, what was shown to us and how, how the judges dealt with it. Um, and I would love for both of you guys, again, as judges and monitors especially, to speak to your understanding of this because I think it's so imperative for the education of our industry as spectators and as exhibitors as well. Can we look at maneuver evaluation spreads? And I would love for you guys to continue to provide some understanding there. Let me take you, before you move on, yep. let me just talk about the finals because after a week, you have, you know, A, one, one judge, one of five, has to make 768 decisions through the finals. That's a lot. That's a lot. There's no advanced sport doing that at that level. So that's the point to that graph, that one judge has to make 768. Three judges, when you put them together, has to make 2,304. That's what it takes to set the five horses that you named off um, that, that win it, mm -hmm. the top five. So that that's, is that's a big deal. And that's just maneuver evaluations, or that's all decisions? No, that what? No, that's just maneuver evaluations. That is not identifying rule infractions, which is penalty applications. No, right. Which is something I know that on other in other conversations and on other shows, you guys have talked about the idea of number one: should penalties be absolute? They either do or don't exist. But then talking about the fact that judges are currently in our current format, judges are making both the decision about a penalty and the decision about a maneuver. Um, and what I'm hearing you guys say is that when you've got a finals like what we did, where there is that depth of level of technicality, the difficulty of decision becomes harder because those are fine distinctions differentiating between what's good and very good or differentiating between what's very good and excellent, right? Correct. No, that's correct. And in correct. all advanced sports, they actually start to separate officiating expertise for those levels of responsibility. We're putting it all in one, expecting them to do it all, and then we're expecting them to do it all at a very high level for a very long time. It's not just an hour or two. It's all day. You know, you, you, it, it is. Saturday, those judges started at 7 in the morning. We happen to watch the finals that started at 5 at night. Those, those judges already put in 10 hours. Right. Right. Um, do you have a preference on which graph we go to next? Let's go to the graph. Well, do yeah, do the score spread because that's the one where the, the industry gets this, which is the any the bulk of the sport of Iranian is now judged under multiple judge scenarios. So whether it's two, three, or five, so spreads. That's not it. The score spreads is the one that all of us at uh, reigning, this is our reflex. Whether you see it on the scoreboard, whether you hear it across the announcers, or you go look at it at score sheets, 
this is the one that we all have a reaction to. All this is doing is showing you the first go, the semifinals, and the finals. And this is score spreads across five judges uh, for across every run. And so all it's doing, how many times, and so the blue is the first go, the red is the semifinals, and the yellow is the finals. So when you look at each of those sections of the open fraternity, um, in bingo is when I, it's, it's when it's obvious. It's when all five scores are exactly the same. And that's what the industry thinks it wants, and I, it's a bad thought. So quit, because you actually, if you wanted all five judges to score it the same way, you only need one. That's my answer. Now you bring the economics to the horse show down. Life's, you could have more purse money. So, okay. And the point to this is, this proves it, because out of 406 horses in the first go-round, all five judges do not mark any run the exact same. That's point one. In the semifinals, it only happens once, and in the finals, it happened twice. Those are runs that if you put 100 judges in the chair, they will mark it the same way. That's rare. Now comes what's normal. Why do we use multiple judges? So you have multiple viewpoints. I've said this many times. There's no hiding in the sport of reigning. So that's why we have five judges, and we've got them all the way around the arena. You can't hide. It's going to be seen. It's going to be evaluated. It'll come in. That's part of the piece of why should we drop highs and lows. But what this chart shows you is the maximum score spread. First go-round maximum score spread. Score spread was three and a half points. So across 400 runs, maximum spread was three and a half points. Semifinals was three and a half points. And in the finals, it steps down to three points. That's the maximum spread. Where's average? Go to the far right of this graph. It's one and a half. And I would tell you, we've been pulling data for three years. I've been, Jody and I have been researching this for 20 years. One and a half is normal. Somewhere between one and one and a half in a multi-judge scenario, if Judge Jody and I judge together and it's just the two of us, if we're within a point, point and a half of each other, we're looking at the same, Raymond. That's the fine distinction, which is the difference of a maneuver evaluation. You have two choices per maneuver. So that's where that is. So that's where normal is. So that's what this is telling you. And then the, the other charts are score spreads of two points, Score spreads of point and a half, score spread of point, because you'll see score spread of point and a half. That's the biggest of the side charts. Yes. 28 of them in the first go, 44 of them in the semifinals, and 22 of them in the finals. Those are the amount of runs per each of those goes that scores were spread by a point and a half. So that's a 73 to a 74 and a half. I'm, it's a 71 to a... 72 and a half. So, I mean, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. So that's what this is showing you. The big bars is a percent breakdown because when you look at the percent, so if this graph, just so that everybody knows, the blue is the first go-round. 95% of the go-round was marked within a two-point differential across 95% of the runs. That's high. That's great. I would tell you that's normal. It's very good. 91% in the semifinals. And it's just shy, 69% in the finals. So that's, that's, that's doing really good. And let me ask you this, for those, because you're telling me that between a one and two points, between a point and a half-ish 
on a score spread is normal. When we see the fact that we have a maximum score spreads of up to three and a half points, and when I look at that as a percentage, four and a half percent of our scores from the go rounds and 30% of our scores from the finals had more than a two point spread. To you guys, put your monitor's hat on. If you're analyzing the work of your five judges and you're realizing that you've got score spreads above normal, what does that tell you about the competition or what does that tell you about the judging? Joke. Okay, well, I you know, I think from the monitor standpoint and you've, you know, you've heard me say this before. I mean, in my my monitors from a monitor's position, I I'm trying to ensure that the judging as the best that it can possibly be. But I also say that, you know, it's not my job as a monitor to teach you or to tell you how to judge. You already know how to do that. My job is to keep you consistent. So you are the same from day one through day 10. That's that's my monitor's job. And again, I'm in complete agreement with Brian. Score spreads on on run evaluations, I mean, on, on an entire run, point, point and a half, two points don't bother me a bit. If... If there is some particular reason that someone is way out in left field on a flyer uh, or maybe way low on a horse, those are kicked out anyway. There are high and lows are gone. So, I, I mean, I, it, we, we don't have to deal with that so much. I think probably what I would use as an educational tool if I were monitoring an event and there were some, some, big, some big spreads, I would go probably drop more into the maneuver evaluation and I would look there than I would the whole overall run. And I would just say that I'm, you know, Brian and I, you've had this discussion with me many, many times. And there's, I, I you know, if you looked at the difference between Sean and Casey's run, the 228 and a half to a 230, that's a half point on a maneuver by three judges, right? I mean, that's like nothing. I mean, it's, I mean, it's great judging. But what I, the issues that I would have from a monitor standpoint, my maneuver evaluation is if I have a, someone call a maneuver good and someone call a maneuver poor, that to me is not possible. Those were the, those would be the situations that I would say, okay, hey, look guys, let's look at this. We're going to learn from it and we'll go there. I mean, because you know, that happens sometimes too. Some, some guy will say, well, look, this is a poor maneuver. And some guy will say, no, it's a good one. Well, can't happen. So anyway, I don't know. I'm going to repeat that for all of the students who are sitting in the back of the room and came in a little late. Maneuver, maneuver scores that have a significant spread is what we should be paying attention to, not total Score scores that right. have a differential. That is correct. Right? And we have a lot of those examples. It's a great piece. It shows a weakness in our system why officiating is not doing as good a job as it should be doing for the level of competition. And the biggest one is the one he just said, which is a minus half and a plus half. How can you put that on the same maneuver? That's what we're saying is it's bad and good at the same time. So that's what we're saying. And no, it's not. It's one or the other or somewhere in between. Correct. We have a, a graph. Right. Now you can put that up to talk about the differentials at the maneuver evaluation level. And I think that you guys, you just continue to impress me with your ability to explain and educate me on how to understand what's happening in a reigning pattern and how judges are looking at it. And I think these kind of tools are great in being able to do so. This graph shows the number 
of times that a maneuver score was a one point or more differential. So anytime you have five judges applying a maneuver score per maneuver across the pattern. So the blue bar is showing you total. This is only doing analysis on the semifinals and the finals. So in the semifinals, you had 177 horses run between the two sections. And then in the finals, you had 96 run between all four levels, two sections, four levels. Um, of those runs, the red bar, 23 runs, had maneuver spreads of more of a point or more. 23 runs. Um, 13 runs had it at the rollback and or stop. So one of the stop maneuvers was 13. This is the semifinals. And eight runs was in the circles, and four runs had it in the spins. So that you had a one point or more differential of maneuver scores. Now the same things, the same numbers, not the same numbers, but that's what the final says. Out of 96 horses, you had 34 horses. You had 34 runs that had maneuver differential of a point or more. That's actually higher in percentage. It's higher. Um, that means they split more. They differed more. You had 21 runs where it was in the rollback or the stops. And remember when I told you that our rollbacks were our struggling maneuver? This is proving it. Um, 10 runs were in the circles. We've had this conversation about getting quality circles for a long time. That's fun when you analyze this. And then you had four runs that it was in the spins, which is exactly the same as semifinals, which means we're not, the spins are pretty, we're doing a great job in the spins. So that's what that says. Jody, as a horseman, maybe you could speak to this as well. Recognizing that your semifinals had 2x the amount of horses to your finals, but yet your finals had more runs with a one point or more differential on the maneuvers as a horseman you know if you're analyzing your scores and you're realizing that you are seeing that difference from judge to judge what does that tell you how can our exhibitors understand that information what do they do with that information well you know it's and that's a i mean that's a question that's that's plagued everyone you know brian you and i both chaired the committee and we've always tried to when we first got a judge's card um you know when when the system first came online we were always taught and we would teach that there are two we we would like to think there are two two pigeonholes for a maneuver it's either going to be a zero it could be correct high end of correct it could be good it could be good it could be very good it could be very good it could be excellent but we don't like to see someone say well that's a correct maneuver and someone say no it's excellent because that is not as bad as someone calling a maneuver poor and someone calling it good, but again, there you have it. Now, from a from a horseman standpoint, myself, and from a judge's standpoint, and I think that your dad would agree with me here. I'm uh, to a certain to a certain extent from a from a rider, a trainer, a teacher standpoint. I'm I'm allowed to like something better than others. So, in other words, maybe this horse turns with plus one very good speed and cadence but he moves location 
a half a body width or maybe a foot. I mean, maybe not very much. And and to me, I say, hmm, okay, I'm still going to call that good instead of very good. Your dad might say, you know what, this thing's supposed to stay in one spot. He's not supposed to move at all, and he'll go zero. So, I mean, we we are entitled to that. We, we're judges. We get to make that decision. I can, I can like a horse, uh, you know, I mean, that, that does something, uses his back a little bit more than another one or, or keeps his top line level when he changes leads. I can take that into consideration. That's why we don't have to be exactly the same. We are just yeah. trying to make sure that, that our, our maneuver evaluations aren't, on two different pages, we, we we I mean the 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 liking can you know can be can be to a certain extent, but it's it shouldn't be from a a correct to an excellent. Okay, I understand. Can we pull up the graph that shows maneuver spreads as a percentage, and then I'll pose this question to you guys, thinking about where reigning is going, and maybe we could even speak about working Western disciplines because you could, I believe, apply many of these concepts to working cow and some of those other disciplines as well that are trying to objectify the scoring. So here's, I'll read some of the numbers or, or Brian, if you want to. Um, This is just looking at the same thing we just looked at with number of runs that had maneuver spreads. This just puts it in a percentage so it's relative to the volume per go. This is looking at the semifinals and the finals. Um, and what this does is look at, so first is your percent of the go. So the blue column is the semifinals. You had 13% of the semifinalists, 177 runs, that had maneuver spreads of a point or more. You had 35% in the finals. So let's use that specific number and talk us through this, educate us a bit if you would. Thinking about the future of reigning for our judging, for our exhibitors, for spectators. uh, First of all, what does that 35% say when you're talking about, you know, a 35 horse? Is that over the full finals, all four levels? Yes. Okay. So across all four levels, six goes. runs. So across 96 goes, 35% of those goes had a maneuver score spread of one point or more. What does that say about the current status of those goes? What did we see in there that would give opportunity for the judges to do so? And for the future of the sport, for spectator and judge exhibitor alike, what should we be thinking about? I I would say this, and then Jody can jump in. One is the technical aspect. Two is the depth of the competition. And then three is the standard per official. And that's when I said, you'll see a standard move. Well, the official, I say this, the official standard shouldn't move. That's where consistency comes into play. You can change it next week, but not during this series of competitions. So one of the biggest chores from officials is to not. That's Jody talks a lot about consistency and keeping them consistent, which is about where is that standard. And I would tell you every time you judge, the first five horses is setting your standard, period, every time. It's the way it is. And, so, and now where does that, what happens, you do have comparative reflexes in there. So that's what it's saying when you look at that. The depth of competition, and there's a lot going on, and it's technically 
that much more demanding is what we're seeing. And so the finals, you had, you had, you had the level four open finals. You had 35 horses that were all capable. This was not a year of they all fell apart and whoever didn't fall apart won. No, 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 no. This was who's the best this year. Well, you had, I don't know, four or five of them that were phenomenal. You had 35 of them that were great. So that's the technical demand. When you say standard across judges, so I'm not talking about consistency of any one judge going through the finals. You're talking about the fact that if you and Jody are judging together, Jody's good, Jody's mark of plus half might be a different mark of your good. That's what you mean, right? Yes, there's two of those. One is the one that the association gives us, and two is ours. And what Jody and I are compelled to do is not change it. And I would tell you that having your five open fraternity finalists judging non-fraternity horses on the day of the finals is probably not a good thing to do. Why their standard will, it may move. It, it just is. You Go judge. I'm not picking on them. Go judge a rookie class doesn't matter how many and then immediately turn around and judge an open class hard it, it, yes and you have to shift go ahead jody i'll yeah, pose the yeah, same question to you and yeah. i i think that no i mean it's it, that's incredibly difficult to do and we've we've had to do that and it's not that's not a simple thing to to judge a a starter level starter level class and then go jump up to a open or professional level class it's very very difficult to do i would say that from you know i had the opportunity one time to, i was you chaired the committee and i was monitoring uh maybe it was the nrha derby in europe and i had an equipment judge and so we had five reasonably small classes and he'd been doing equipment and so what i did is i just as an experiment and i told him i told Lottie what i was going to do with him i said i moved him to each and every chair for the next and i just i spelled him because he'd been on equipment so anyway i took my chair one judge put them on equipment put audie in chair one the next class i put him in chair two three four and five and uh, okay so i said what and he said you know without question chair five was the hardest chair to judge from for him after going through the progression of chairs one two three four and going to five he said it was the most difficult chair for him to judge from sometimes let's say that and you know we have we have different judges that can be on the conservative side and some that are exactly the opposite of that and like i said brian and i are, are your scale you you want to set your scale but sometimes guys that are are, are a conservative judge have done it that way their whole life so in other words they that plus one and a half isn't just excellent to them it needs to be perfect so they won't use that very much you know what i mean it's it, but in other words so sometimes you can take uh from a monitor standpoint you can have a judge if you got a conservative judge and you stick him in a chair that's maybe four or five that guy's maybe going to be thrown out more times than he's going to be used because conservative by nature in a chair that itself is maybe causing that guy to score lower because he can't see if the horse is stopping away from him whatever there are different there are different factors that can come into the way that a guy marks a maneuver or marks a horse. It's not just it's not just a standard, but I think it's up maybe up to the monitor to 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 see that. And I, I think Brian, what he, he's what we're talking about a lot of times when we when we see stuff like this, it just boils down to education. And 
and we need to do a better job. Again, just an opinion. Well, I'll elaborate. Education, preparation, management, and the rest of the environment that goes through it. We got to set the officials up to perform at the same level that we're now setting up our athletes, which is horses and riders. We got the ground, we got the venue, we got the stalls, we got all that stuff figured out. We got purses. Now let's tend to the officials. That's where that. I don't, I, I have some more specific questions about maneuver evaluation spreads because there's a few that show up, Matt Mills run, Sean's run, that I want to bring up specifically and ask you guys about. So I'm coming back to it. However, Jody just mentioned something, and you guys were talking a little bit about uh, an individual standard and staying consistent with that through a through a, a class, through a futurity. And you used the example of don't have them go judge the rookie before they're going to judge the, the open level four. And, and they didn't at this show. Let me just clarify, they did not do that. However, considering what they did do is judge the levels one, two, and three that morning – um, and thanks to Brian, I have the numbers. The uh, average score it took to make the level one finals was a 210. And as a severe comparison, the average to make the level four finals was a 220. So you're talking about a 10 point difference there. The average, and I'll read them all the way up. Level one was a 210. These are averages. Level two was a 215. Level three was a 217. And level four was a 220. Do we think we're at a sport in our industry where having those judges start at 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. that morning, whatever time they started, and judging 50-some 210 to 215 horses before they have to judge 35 of the best of the best and hand out a million dollars, are we are we yes. asking for a challenge? Yes. The answer is yes. And are you asking for more mistakes or more human error or whatever you want to call that? Yes. Can we set that stage so that all of them can do their best for the best. Yes, we can. And we should. Even though, I mean, do you guys, cause I playing devil's advocate, having a separate set of judges, judge your levels one through three, when those scores are carrying through for payouts and all that kind of stuff. Is that well, a, that's your complex question. And that leads us to a whole nother one, which we, we probably won't get to on this show. Leveling eligibility, multiple, horses per rider that whole component but the four levels trying to run it is all one go um are there different ways which now under the current way that's why they do what they do because they want the officiating to be as consistent as it can be i would pose to us there are different and maybe alternative better ways to do it which would also allow you to have officiating elevate too but it's not the same batch. So, uh, yes. Let's talk about that for a second, because when we talk about the technicality and depth of competition, I do think it's relevant to touch on, and maybe we have another episode about it all together to go into the, the depths of it. I just gave you guys the numbers, making it back through all four of those levels. Jody, knowing what we saw this year across, you know, 90-some finalists, um, and thinking about how we currently separate our levels, do you think when we look forward to the future of reigning, are there some better options for us? Oh, I, th I think definitely there is. Um, I think that there are some, there are some, uh, I think that there are some, 
some things that could, you know, be greatly improved, both from the show management standpoint and from the judges standpoint. I mean, you can, you know, we've, Brian and I have sat in those chairs sometimes 20 hours and, you know, I mean, it's not the show committee's fault because they had no idea the numbers that they were going to get. But I will promise you, after I've sat in that chair 20 hours, I don't care who wins. I, mean, I, I, I mean, I don't. You're exhausted. You, I mean, you're you're trying you're, to do your job, worked. and it's like you, you know, I'll pay you to let me leave. So you know, I mean, it's uh, yeah, yeah. There's you can't, yeah, can't do it. So, and I referenced this earlier in the show, but the studies that I looked at back when I was in college about the diminishing return of decision making did a study on mice, and it was using. Uh, instinctual behavior to try and measure where that happened and they got to a point where they would actually use food to incentivize the animal and they found that there was such a point with animals of uh, depletion of decision making they would actually stop eating Mm. they would they would literally not eat because the pursuit of trying to get food was so hard and they were depleted and when you that's that is a you know for all of us who what we're doing with animals we understand instinct it's exactly what you're talking about. You hit a point where you literally don't you don't you don't have it anymore. Right. We what? asked those judges. We asked five judges to make 768 decisions in three hours. That puts it into magnitude. Right, Jody. Do you have any just examples? You might not have the perfect model, but give me just some examples that, as an industry, we could start toying with when we think about how to change up our leveling system so that we're judging and analyzing batches of horses and riders of equivalent caliber. Well, you know, and you've, I mean, are you sure you want me to start on this, right? (laughs) I mean, because, uh, but I, you know, I will, I will, you know, you've heard me talk about this on Rainer Stop and, and I will, I'll give you there's a there's an old there's an old golfer an old golf pro here in Oklahoma and I've played at his courses a lot of times and his name was Duffy Martin and Duffy was a he was a character I mean such a good guy and he would he would he had a he had a great saying one time you know guys would start to want to blame their equipment or they needed a new driver and Duffy would say um, it, it ain't the arrow it's the Indian. Right. So in other words, it's like it's not it's that's not that. So my deal is, is that we with with NRHA, we we try to level the playing field by riders and grouping our riders. Okay, I mean, it's like, you know, we've got our level ones, we've got our twos, we've got our threes and our fours. But, you know, truly, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, Michael Schumacher would not have have won a Formula One race in a Volkswagen. Right. I mean, the greatest driver that's ever been. He, He couldn't have done it. Sean Flaherty is not going to win the Futurity on a bad horse. He's a great trainer. He's a great showman. Pressure doesn't bother him. Andrea is the same way. You know, Abby, she, uh, you know, she was third in this Futurity. You know why? Because she had a really good horse that would let her be third in this Futurity. I mean, she could do it again next year if she finds another one just like it. But the horse is what makes, what levels the playing field. And so for me... And I, I mean, I, I, I'll throw this out here just, you know, quickly. And there's, I mean, I, you can room for discussion for me. I would rather see the futurity go to actually three separate futurities. And I would like our level one horses to be, in other words, the rider, you get to pick, you know, in January, when it's time to nominate your horse, you're going to say, look, I'm going to show him in my level one or the level four, wherever this one's going to pay 350000 to win. I'm going to put him in here. 
or I have a 217 horse, I think after I've rode him his whole two-year-old year, I'm going to stick him in the number two futurity. Um, maybe I've got that 215 or that 217, 16 horse. I think I can win the most money if I drop him down into the level one futurity. I can show one of those horses, right? I can show one in each futurity. I still get to show three head. And I can enter as many as I want to in that level four. But I can't drop them back down. That means that the guys that have the best horses are going to have to make their decision as which one they're going to show. But I, I would see the handicap on horses as making much, much more sense than it does on trying to fit riders into slots. Because I'll promise you, if you want to see if you want to see more and more people come into this business, you know, if you have some guys that have got their horses, uh, they've got. 15 of them entered in the level one or that level four division and they can only show one of them boy howdy they're going to be looking for some guys to come back in and help you know take those horses over and show them so i mean there's ways to do it and i i just think it makes much much more sense from a from an industry standard and then you're judging look i can do this maturity today i can do this one tomorrow it's just 30 head i'm going to look at 30 head of finalists we get get through that i mean they can all show exactly in the same format that they're using right now but the purse structure is going to be different and uh, just a, something that that would be very very interesting to to uh to see what would happen because it would also provoke much much more thought from the trainer standpoint when it comes to okay where am i going to put this horse so anyway. no kidding yeah well Maybe that helps move into the team concept of our industry because it is an individual, but now from a business standpoint, could you have a team or a stable, you know, and you could do that kind of thing. I think it's a phenomenally um, interesting idea. And so Jody's take on that it always intrigues me when we talk about that part of it. Absolutely. And, and I just wrote down maybe that might need to be a show all by itself. And sure. then we could we could actually get you know two or three people from around the industry that and just talk about that. Right. Yep. Pros and cons, and that is interesting. I mean, I could definitely see both and sides the of the coin. Right. And the business right. it would create business opportunity if we could advance the sport while opening the door to more business. There's no harm in any of that. And and you're talking about owners business side you're talking about riders business side you're talking about shows and production and then every supply line in between yeah that's fascinating okay well it's your show so you guys can <laughs> have another episode if <laughs> you want do, we can do whatever we want right yeah that's sure. right and, and and to the audience i would say that if you guys are interested in hearing more about that drop us a line drop us an email reach out to us on social media and i'll i'll push the boys to do it mm-hmm. um I know we are we are pushing up on on time. Let me go back real quick because these were such cool runs and everybody that watched the finals remembers them and I want you guys' expert take on it and then we will begin to wrap up here. Spread scores at the maneuver level because I want to reemphasize something you guys have already said. Scores, total scores that have a spread, not a big deal. What we should be looking at is within the maneuver, do we have spreads and what does that say about the run? What does that say about what we are giving our judges and tools to use. Matt Mills' run had a zero to a plus one in the same maneuver on the first stop and back. Can you guys talk about how this can happen and what it says about that run or that the score? The and marks? I'm going to give you yes, 
but I'm going to give you a comparable so that everybody's on a similar. Sean Flaherty on the winning run, on the first maneuver, which is a stop and back, had from had a one point spread, had from a plus half to a plus one and a half, which is a one point differential. So that one point differential is the same, different, slightly different scale. You're talking about how good, but on Matt and Sean, on that first maneuver, we're seeing that. So that's the, it's, it's not which one, it's the occurrence of it. Mm-hmm. And the occurrence of it is the depth, the technical, um, and where's the standard from the official applying it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's it. So I, you can you can go wherever you want, but the differential between a good and an excellent maneuver is pretty similar to the difference of a correct and a, and a very good maneuver. So I would tell you, no, they're not the same. So where is it? And so Jody always says it's somewhere in the middle. In the well, middle. that means it's on, yeah, which Plus means that. it's a good to very good. Yep. So and and the other one's got to be on the very good to excellent. Right. Well, and and Jody, maybe elaborate on the concept of tools in the toolkit because we teased something out earlier in the week about the concept of dropping highs and lows, and I used that as merely a tool to get our friends and audience to begin to think about the tools in the toolkit that we have to offer. But we can use these runs as an example because when in our current industry we drop the lowest score we drop the highest score in a five judge system and add the three in the middle well if you take either one of these runs and let's just assume that whoever was scoring the highest you know the plus one and a half on sean's let's just assume that that score came out to be the highest at the end you're dropping that score um which means that the concept of of that stop and back probably being in the middle that high score gets tossed out right? It doesn't get used. Um, can you talk a little bit, Jody, about you, the current tools in the toolkit and where our competition is demanding more from us? I, you know, I, I can, and I, and I, I will, and Brian and I have, you know, we, we've experimented with, with some of this and <laughs> found some, found some things that we think that we think that work. Um, but I, I think from, from a, from a, from the tool standpoint or from the educational standpoint from our from our officials i think that we're and it's not and i i can i can i can give you some really good examples of why i would love to see all five scores used i can give you some examples of why probably that wouldn't be a good idea on on an average weekend reigning because i mean brian i'm sure that you've been involved you've seen some some three judge systems where one guy's been two and a half points high and single-handedly decided who won the reigning so that's not you know i mean that's not and it happens that way so and it's not uh that's not necessarily a good thing either i think we're we're our people need our, our people need more more tools in the toolbox. Are when you get those examples of of say Matt Mills when he comes in and and maybe his backup isn't as good as you know the stop you think is a bonaf. I didn't. I mean, I'm not I'm not recalling the, the the maneuver itself, so I can't. You know nobody's good right or wrong here. But let's say he runs in, busts it for a plus one or plus one and a half stop, and then he comes back and his backup is correct, or maybe he takes a misstep or two, puts his head on his chest, something that maybe a judge doesn't like. So 
How much weight is the backup being given? And we don't teach that right now. We don't teach that, okay? I mean, we can say, okay, well, I don't like the back, but we don't tell that judge what we're supposed to do with that in that situation. Let's just say, use it as an example. Maybe that backup should be a whole separate maneuver itself so that it makes that guy, he can go plus one on the stop, minus half on the backup, and we have a good overall maneuver. I'm just saying those are some things that that we need to get in depth into. And some of those, some of those maneuver evaluations where Brian talked about the one very good spin and we're judging by comparison, there's an excellent and we go very good. We go plus one and a half, but we don't go plus one and a half on both. We don't call them both excellent because is it fair? This other one wasn't quite as good. So our, our judging standard needs to be able to address that. When we're giving away 350, 400,000, a million dollars, we need to be able to figure this out because we ain't got it right now. That's the technical. Everything he's talking about is the technical pressure that we're now under. It's not just a one-off. We're there. So as an industry, we've got to get to work. And demanding it from your judges not a few times in a set of finals, every single maneuver in 35 runs. Yeah, but we've now seen it. I mean, Jody and I have been hovering here for a couple years since we got more time these days. Um, (laughs) And, and, well, the point is we're seeing this time and time and time. The, The aged events are there. We're there. Life after the fraternity is there as an industry. Now these horses can go do some stuff for a long time. And it starts in February and it goes till December. So it's there. Mm -hmm. We got to go. I appreciate the insights. Let me pose this question to you guys as we wrap up this show. What's, What's next for our industry? You know, when we think about purses, event productions, new people coming to the industry as exhibitors, riders, trainers, spectators, suppliers, etc. Um, what, you know, when you look at the three-year-olds we just saw, what picture does that paint and where would you guys as experts kind of challenge our industry to start thinking about and asking some questions so that we can pave the way for more? I wish I was 20. Years old? Yes. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do it again, but anyways, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's a fun thought because the opportunities are way more abundant, which all of that is good. The opportunities are the doors are wide open and it's, and, and it's our responsibility to go there and not let others do it for us. That's so anyways, and I wished I was 20, but I'm not. Yeah, right. We one hand, right? It's like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, you know, Boone Pickens is a favorite of mine, and I had watched Boone interview one time, and he he was talking about the, he was talking to some of the college kids at OSU, and he said, you know what? He said, I'll, pro-, he said, here, you can have all my money, right now. I said, I'm gonna trade places with you. You can have all my money, but I get to be your age, and you get to be mine. So, in in other words, that money didn't mean one thing to him. It was like, come on, let's go. I can make plenty of that. Let's go. So now there's, there's lots of, 
there's lots of things that we can do. And Chelsea, like I said, just having you here with us on the show is so refreshing for me. And we talked about that because, you know, Brian and I, the, the, the two, the two silver haired guys, right? We can <laughs> kind of get guys. stuck. It's a different yeah. world right now. Chelsea, it's your world, right? So there's stuff to be learned. Like I said, the answer is always in the middle. It's somewhere between you and between us. And that's where, uh, that's where the answers to these, to the questions that we're asking are going to come from. It's going to be some of from us, some of it from you. And then we'll find that, we'll find that middle that's going to make this officiating in this event even better. I think, I think the opportunities are abundant. And so travel, geography, information, mobility, all of that stuff aren't barriers like they used to be. And so that just creates more opportunity. Um, where do we go is yet to be seen, but that's what this show is all about. It's about having those intelligent conversations so that we can pursue where to go in our best interest. We spent a lot of the show talking about the subjective nature of the scoring of our sport and the subjective analysis that went into identifying what the 2022 NRHA Open Futurity brought us. Do you guys believe, you know, we're right now at a time in global sports where we're right in the middle of you know soccer doing what it's doing and finals are coming up for basketball and all of those things do you guys believe that the subjective nature of our sport is a limiting factor moving forward i don't i don't and i'll elaborate in a minute jody go no i mean i i i I don't i don't feel like that's the case at all so yeah go ahead with your with your train of thought I think horse sports, and I say that in a generic plural sense because this is not discipline or breed specific. Horse sports has a very special place in the sports component of providing a product to a spectator. And we need to start to take advantage of that. One of the biggest is men and women competing on an equal and fair playing field. The horse neutralizes it. The horse does not care. It's the only sport that I know of. Um, and, and it's because of the horse and it's so our, our love of the horse. And then the second is the officiating component. And does it have to be what we're all used to in other sports? The answer is no, I would give you, and I'm not a soccer fan guru. I'm, I'm not, but for whatever reason, I kind of was following along with the world cup here and the VAR, their use of technology. And the, there was a big controversial piece between Spain and Japan game, which was about using technology that made an official call and whether or not it was right or wrong. That's a fascinating. So in all of sports, I study that side of sport because where does the officiating and the, and the competitor and how does that play out? And so um, horses and horse sports, creates such an opportunity and we have the ability to control that and set it for ourselves as an industry as opposed to having others and i think that that's a luxury that most others haven't had um so why don't we take advantage of it beautifully said (laughs) yes period hard stop and the podcast (laughs) yeah yep just saying yeah no i I think you're exactly right and i think Jody, what you said about it being in the middle, I see a generation even younger than me coming up and beginning to lean on me even for 
insights on, you know, their career path. I want to work in this industry, but, but I don't want to be a professional trainer. I know that's not my path. What's next for me? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm still figuring that out myself. But all of these kinds of topics, like the use of technology and assisted technology and making official decisions is all for a greater thing, which is about enhancing integrity and honesty to a sport for the sake of value and value to the household, right? Bringing us entertainment and uh, connection value as individuals to each other and to a, to a sport and to our country and to all of those things. We we have a sport though. Uh, Again, I could give you a list of assets and attributes of why our sport is special and what we should be selling to the fan. And a big one is not only is it gender neutraling, but a big one is it's a lifestyle. Unlike all other sports that you follow and you come in and out of, you get to live this life and get out of it, whatever part of it you want. And that to me is way cool. And, and there's no, it's nothing but good, good for the heart, good for the soul, good for everything, good for the family. It's just good. So why not go expand that? And in today's time, can we offer that to more people? You know, uh, in one of our other podcasts, we talked about 30% of the U.S. households have horse interest. That's, you know, 80 to 100 million people. Come on. We got something. Yep. Come on. Mm-hmm. So let's go. The subjective analysis, I'm going to, I want to finish it with because our officiating is subjective dependent, can we? make it less subjective and more objective while the human expert is still a key element. The answer is yes. No different than our horses aren't going to go compete without us. They might for 10 seconds, but they won't finish the run. They won't finish cutting the cow. They, they won't, they'll only turn the cow once. They're not going to turn it twice by themselves. So it's all of those things. And so they need us to be with it. And we can. Great. Okay. Well, I know that there are many great things ahead, um, many good podcast conversations to come, maybe more on the leveling. The industry is doing some great things. Not only did we see a beautiful futurity this year, we got some great announcements in the industry, like 100X purchasing Tulsa Reigning Classic. And, I mean, talk about a time in the industry. So I know there's more conversation to come. There is. Well, our whole next series is going to be the status of the current horse show industry. We're going to do a 12-episode, 12 12-week series on the current status of the horse show industry so that'll come right into play beautiful well thank you guys for uh, allowing me to be with you on your show today thank you all for tuning in for those of you that did if you have not yet signed up to be a part of the cowboy office community you can drop your email at cowboyoffice.com which will not only allow you access to hear insights from the gentleman every single week but you'll get updates on when new podcast episodes release such as the upcoming series on the status of the industry so cowboyoffice.com we will see you guys next week thanks for tuning in awesome thank you chels Today's episode is brought to you by 40 Productions in cooperation with the Consultment Agency, a full-service agency that helps bring forward-thinking equine brands into the 21st century using digital skills and services such as website development, graphic design, social media, and media production such as the podcast you're consuming here today. Thank you so much for riding along with us today. Sign up at cowboyoffice.com to be the first to know about topics affecting the industry we love so much. You can reach out to us with topics you care about by finding us on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. And remember, share this episode with someone that may enjoy it, because the more we can share our horses with others, the better our world will be.